If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm, what we read last Monday, if you're doing our 100 Days Through the Bible Challenge. Uh, by the way we, way, we have one more week left in the Old Testament, and a week from tomorrow we'll begin in the New Testament. So I hope this has been an exciting journey through the Old Testament, and we will uh, uh, sort of issue a new challenge. I'm looking forward to this next week as we talk about 50 days through the New Testament. Uh, I wanted to share something with you as I began. Uh, some of our children uh, on Wednesday nights wrote some uh, encouragement letters to some of our staff, and I received a few of those this week, and I've been reading through them. They are very encouraging. Uh, this one is from Fallon Payne, a young lady in our church, and she wrote a nice, a nice letter. And I won't read the whole letter, but uh, yeah, very, very encouraging. But I wanted to share with you what's on the outside. So she drew a uh, rainbow. You can see that behind me. I was impressed that she has all the colors in the correct scientific order. So somebody has uh, raised this girl right. Uh, she wrote faith, hope, and love underneath. But here's the best part. She introduced herself, and you've got you've to hear this. I love God. And then, the, then in parentheses, and unicorns. So, <laughs> so what, a, um, what a sweet and outstanding young lady. Uh, we're going to focus this morning on the 23rd Psalm. Uh, this is uh, a psalm that you may be very familiar with. Uh, but perhaps you do not know uh, that this psalm, this prayer recorded in this psalm, uh, originated out of a broken heart. That this psalm was written not from uh, one of those lofty places in life that we find ourselves from time to time, but this psalm was written from the pit of despair. And, and I want us to look at this psalm afresh this morning uh, from that perspective. I, I want us to be reminded who wrote the psalm and where he was when he wrote this psalm. And I think it'll have uh, even greater meaning for you uh, when we see it that way. So let me tell you the story of David and Absalom. David uh, was king of Israel. We mentioned Absalom last week. That uh, is his third son. Uh, and the relationship between David and Absalom was a very uh, difficult relationship. It was strained for, for many, many years. Uh, you have to go back to early in David's reign. Uh, David had had a number of sons, and one son's name was Amnon. And Amnon had raped a daughter of David named Tamar. And so just a terrible, unspeakable thing that had happened. Well, David decided, the father, the king, decided not to address the situation. He didn't say anything to anybody. And this angered David's other son, one of David's other sons, Absalom. And so after a couple of years of David, because he was dealing with his own demons, as you know, uh, after a couple of years of him not addressing the situation, Absalom decided that he would step in and address the situation. So Absalom arranged to have his brother Amnon murdered. And so now things have gone from bad to even worse. And so David has this relationship with Absalom who has just arranged 
for one of David's other sons to be killed following uh, Amnon's terrible conduct with his daughter Tamar. David's whole family is falling apart. Well, then things a few years later really go from bad to worse between David and Absalom because Absalom decides that he should be the next king. Uh, David was going to pass the throne down to his son Solomon, uh, but Absalom thought he should be the next king. And so Absalom begins a coup against his father. And in those days, every coup was by nature a bloody coup. And so Absalom is out for his father's head. And so Absalom pulls together some of the military and some of the king's advisors and goes after his father. This is a terrible relationship. And so David gets word that the coup has begun and he, with a few of his advisors and some of his military, they have to flee Jerusalem. And so David is running as the king. He is running out of Jerusalem in order uh, to hopefully save his life. Well, then he gets there uh, in, the, in the middle of the wilderness, really, and he waits for the, for the battle to begin. He waits for Absalom to come and find him, and he thinks that this likely will be the very end. Now, at that point, uh, David would have faced a number of emotions. I'll tell you the rest of the story, just if you're curious, because it's helpful. Um, Absalom did attack David and his forces, uh, but Absalom was unsuccessful. Uh, one of the interesting things about Absalom, if we could just make light of it for a moment, uh, Absalom is, um, well, he's the man in the Old Testament that I personally identify most with. And, and I'll share with you why. Uh, a couple of reasons. Second Samuel 14, 25 and 26 says, no man in all Israel was as handsome and as highly praised as Absalom. I don't know why you're laughing. Listen on. It says, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he did not have a single flaw. And my wife said, amen. Thank you. But there was something else about Absalom, and this is how it plays into uh, the story of Absalom versus David. Absalom, uh, again, a lot like me, uh, had a lot of hair. It says in 2 Samuel 14 that he could grow five pounds of hair a year. Now, one of the, one of the things that happened, he's in battle and he's trying to um, uh, destroy his father David, take his throne, and he's on a mule and he's, and he's going through the wilderness and he goes under some low-hanging branches and he gets his hair his thick hair stuck in the branches such that the mule keeps going and he's left dangling by his hair in the wilderness and the enemy comes along and kills him and he dies into the battle. That is why a few years ago I began to shave right, <laughs> right in the middle. Um, I've never been on a mule, but just in case I am prepared. So now... We get to the serious, serious part. David is in the wilderness. His son is after him. Uh, David is experiencing a number of deep emotions. Let's see if we can, if we can name them. Uh, I believe that David is angry. You ever been just so angry <clears throat> you couldn't speak that you just shook with anger? 
I think David must have had that kind of anger. I mean, here his own son is trying to take the throne. His own son is trying to kill him. The anger would have been just uh, overwhelming. David was angry. Uh, I'm sure David also experienced regret. Uh, This whole thing really came about because when Amnon um, did this thing against Tamar, uh, David was preoccupied with his own sin and he didn't take care of things like he should have taken care of things. And that's what turned Absalom against David to start with. Had David just taken care of what he should have done years ago, if David would have just done his job, if he would have just been the king, if he would have just been a dad, then none of this would have happened. It was David's fault. I'm sure he experienced regret. You ever experienced regret? You ever found yourself in a situation and you thought, I'm here because of what I've done or failed to do? I think there was fear. Uh, David thought that he would likely lose his position at least. He would no longer be the king. He would lose his possessions and likely lose his life. If David thought he could have been victorious over Absalom, he would have never fled Jerusalem. He thought he was going to die. He he sat there thinking, this could be my last day. I may not breathe another breath after this day. He was filled with fear. You ever been scared? I'm sure he was exhausted. I'm sure he was sad for the nation of Israel, the great nation of God, God's people, God's nation, and now it's just all coming unraveled in a, in a coup. Uh, he must have felt guilt, terrible guilt. If you remember last week, we talked about David's sin and his cover-up, and we said that he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan said, David, there are certain things that are going to happen as a consequence of your cover-up. And he listed some of the things that would happen. And you know what? They're all happening right now. Even that thing that Nathan said about David's wives being being taken advantage of in public to spite David, that had happened the day before. That very thing, everything Nathan said would happen is happening. And and whose fault is that? It's David's fault. Nathan said, because of what you've done, these things will follow. Now they're following. David must have been just crushed with guilt. Crushed with guilt. There was disappointment. Uh, David had been given these promises by the Lord about how the kingdom of God and and how you'll always have a son uh, on the throne and that son will represent you. He will be the the David on the throne and and now it's, it's, it's coming unraveling, the disappointment, the hopelessness, the rejection. In 2 Samuel 16, the Bible says that when David and his entourage were fleeing the city, uh, that, that people started throwing rocks at the king on his way out. And, and they said this, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. David just previously had been the most popular man in Egypt, I mean in Israel. And, 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 and just this, this hero of the people and now he's fleeing. And not only does he have the problem with Absalom, but, but the people have rejected him. Have you ever felt rejection? And then I think David felt despair when they began to throw rocks at David. One of his uh, lieutenants said, David, 
I'll go cut that man's head off for throwing a rock at the king. And you know what David said? David said, no. He said, this is, this is my fault. That man's right. Let him throw his rocks. David had just come to the end of his rope. There was no fight left in him. His life had fallen apart. Everything he counted as valuable was lost. There was no guarantee of the next day. David was as low as a person could possibly be. So what's David going to do? What's David going to do from the pit of the well? What is David going to do? Well, it's interesting. David begins to pray. And he writes down some of his prayers. And in fact, you may not have known this, but some of the most well-known things that David ever said. Andre, some of the things that we sing about over and over were things that David wrote that day from the pit. I'll read some of them to you. Psalm 3, 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield to me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That is my favorite song in the world. You could sing that every day, Andre, and I would be fine. I love that song. And, and I, love, I love that song because it, our choir does it so beautifully. But I love that song because just of that truth. But the truth is even more valuable when you realize that David didn't say that from the mountaintop. David said that from the pit, from the pit. Uh, well, what about Psalm 63.1? You'll recognize this. You may not have known where David was when he prayed it, but you'll recognize the, the prayer. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. When did David say that? On this day, in the wilderness, listening if Absalom might be coming through the woods. And David prayed another prayer. Many scholars believe, and we can't be certain, we can be certain about Psalm 63 and Psalm 3 because the Bible tells us as much. But many scholars believe that it was on that day that David prayed what we call the 23rd Psalm. This psalm was was birthed out of a broken heart. This psalm was birthed out of fear and anger. This psalm was birthed out of despair and pain. That was, that was David's heart. And when he didn't know anything else to do, he didn't know anything else to say, he bowed his knees and he opened his mouth and he, and he spoke the words that we read in the, in the 23rd psalm. Now, here's why I think that's important. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the psalm, you and I are going to be at the bottom of the pit. Maybe you're there right now. You and I are going to be angry or in despair, or we're going to be fearful of, of our lives or our future or our, our position or our possessions. You, you, you and I are going to feel guilt and regret. They're just going to be those times. And so what do you do? What do you do? I remember one time 
I bought a, an appliance I had to put together and I cut it out of the box. I got home and there were all these pieces and there were all these uh, pieces of paper and envelopes with screws and bolts and things. And I thought, oh, what have I gotten myself into? And, and I looked and on top of all that stuff, there, there was one piece of paper and it said on the outside, start here. And I thought, that is my salvation. You know what I, you know what I suggest? That you take your pen and you write above Psalm 23, start here. Because when you get to the bottom of the pit and you don't know what to do, start here. That's what David did. That's what we ought to do. So let me read this to you. I preach from the CSB Bible. And most of the time it probably sounds just like every other Bible. It will not today. Psalm 23 sounds very different. It uh, means the same thing. There's nothing wrong with my Bible or yours, uh, but it, it, it's going to slow us down. It's not going to sound the same, and I'll explain that as we go through it. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. I almost said still waters because I memorized this like you did in another version. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, and that is the literal translation, uh, the very precise translation of that verse. Even as I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Let's see from that passage uh, a few things we can do. I'm not going to skip some so that we can get to lunch today. But a few things that we can do when we are in the pit. What does this psalm tell us to do? What did David do and what should we do? Well, number one, we need to acknowledge what we really need. Acknowledge what you really need. That's where we start. Look at the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Now that's not how we memorize that, is it? I've always said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's nothing wrong with that, except for this. The definition of the English word want has changed over the last two or three hundred years. Uh, There were words that meant things two or three hundred years ago that we use the same words today and they mean something a little different. Oftentimes when we read the word want, we think about a desire. I will not desire something. And so we read Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not desire stuff. But that's not what the scripture says. I looked up the Hebrew lemma. I found it 23 times in the Old Testament. I read every single time. Nowhere does it refer to a desire. What it says is the Lord is my shepherd, shepherd, I have what I need. What David said is, the Lord is my shepherd, and that covers it. He recognized that he didn't need anything else. If the Lord is your shepherd, you have everything you need. 
Now, we think we need things sometimes, right? I mean, we could make a list of things. We pray, God, please give me this. Please make me healthy. Please help people to accept me. Please give me victory over this obstacle that I'm facing. But the truth is, and what David recognized, is if the Lord is my shepherd, then I have everything I need. Now, let's go through some needs. Let's see if that, in fact, is true. Do we really need to be accepted by other people? Well, that's valuable, right? We all want to be liked and accepted and loved by other people. But do we need that? Sometimes we drive ourselves crazy because somebody won't accept us. But do we really need to be accepted? No, because we have been accepted by the God of heaven. God loves me. God cares for me. God sent his son to pay the penalty for my sins. God watches after every day of my life. God gives me wisdom. God cares for me. And when you think about it, the Lord is my shepherd, so I have what I need. I don't need people to accept me because God accepts me. What about this? Do I really need perfect health? I want to be healthy. You want to be healthy. You ever been in the hospital room and you, and you prayed for health? Ever had somebody around you suffering and you prayed for their health? Certainly, good health is good. But do we really need perfect health? No, because the God in heaven has promised to give us ultimate health in a new and eternal life. We do have perfect health. We're just waiting for it to be fully realized. I don't need perfect health today because I have perfect health promised for me for all eternity. Do we really need more money? Now think about it. Do we really need more money? No. Listen, we think we do. We want more. I want more. You want more. But we don't need more money because God in heaven has said he will supply all of our needs. And we have a rich inheritance in heaven that we cannot even count, that we cannot even imagine. We don't, we don't need more money if God is our shepherd. Do we really need uh, popularity? Well, no, because because we're pretty popular in heaven. Did you know that? You're pretty popular in heaven. The Bible says that God sees you as the righteousness of Christ, that God loves you enough to send his son to die for you, that he watches over you. Do we really need victory in our struggle? Whatever your struggle is, whatever my struggle is, no, because ultimately the ultimate victory is guaranteed by Christ. Ultimately, so, so when it comes right down to it, the only struggle that we have is the struggle with sin and death. And God says, I've got that one covered. And so these other struggles we have, and we have struggles, but we need to know what David knew. We need to learn what David learned. In the pit, he recognized, the Lord is my shepherd, so I have what I need. You, you know, this is a lesson that... You, you, I think you can only learn at, in the pit. You can only learn this lesson when there's a bad health problem. You can only learn this lesson perhaps when you're going to the funeral of a parent. You, you, you can only learn this lesson when maybe your marriage is, um, is struggling. You can only learn this lesson when, when a child rebels. You, you can only learn this lesson when you don't have a job. I mean, you have to go through a hard time but in life, when we find ourselves in hard times, this is where we should start. We have to learn this lesson. 
the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. It's interesting that the apostle Paul learned this lesson. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was at a low point in his life. He was struggling. In fact, he had a problem and he begged God to solve the problem. And God said, no, I'm not going to solve it. And so in the midst of that anguish, Paul learned a lesson. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. So he he says, God told me that I don't need the problem solved because I've got God. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul learned the lesson. I don't need anything. I thought I did. I got to the bottom of the pit and I was crying about it. But God has shown me I, I have what I need. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah learned this lesson. In fact, Jeremiah wrote one whole book called The Lamentations. It's in our Bible, in one of those books we don't read very often, Lamentations. You know what a lamentation is? That's when you're crying and, and, and you're in sorrow. And in the middle of that book, Jeremiah comes to this realization. Jer- Lamentations 3.24. He said, this is what I've learned. The Lord is my portion. You know, I keep wanting all these things, but the Lord is really all I want and all I need. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. Jeremiah learned the lesson. And of course, David learned the lesson when he was in his pit and he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. So I I want you to picture this. David is, David is sitting on a rock, leaned against a tree, scared to death that Absalom's going to run around the, run, run around the corner any moment and run him through. He's scared to death. He's angry, despair, all those things. And so he pulls out a college ruled animal skin, okay, to take some notes. And he has a, a ballpoint quill and he begin, he's gonna make a list. I've got a problem, you've probably made a list like this, I have. All right, on one side of the, one side of the paper, I'm gonna write the good stuff that's going on. And on the other side, I'm gonna write what I need, the bad stuff. And then I'm gonna t- you know, figure out my next plan. So on the, on the left side, he writes, The Lord is my shepherd. And then he looks to the the column to write the bad stuff. And he can't think of anything. And he thinks, in light of the fact the Lord is my shepherd, I can't think of anything to put in the other column. And so he writes, I have what I need. So when we get to the bottom of the pit, what we need to recognize is that we don't need anything if the Lord is our shepherd. We don't need anything if the Lord is our shepherd. Well, the second thing that we must do is rest by trusting. And you just have to trust me with that. Let's go to number three. Uh, We we need to choose the paths that honor the Lord. Uh, Look at verse three that we read a moment ago. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. So here we're talking about God leads us along the right paths. You know, when we get in a situation like this, we want to know what, what do we need to do? I'm sure David thought that. What what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, I I can't go back home. The kingdom's been taken from me. My throne is gone. Uh, My son, my family has collapsed. My son took some of my wives away from me. I don't have any money. I don't have any, I'm just hopeless. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, and you and I have been places, we've been in situations where we said, know what to do. What am I going to do? I don't know. I don't know. And we're grasping, trying to figure out how we're going to rescue us. 
How am I going to get myself out of this situation? But notice this verse. It, it, it says, he renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. And we're thinking, well, okay, well, that's what I want. God, lead me along the right path. I don't know what path to take. But then he tells us in this phrase that we usually just sort of skip over when we're reading the verse. Um, he leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. See, the right path is not necessarily the path that gets you out of trouble. The path is the name, is the path that brings glory to his name. So that's what we ought to be looking for. We, we get in the middle of something and we're looking for how we can escape. We don't need to look for how to escape. We need to look for how to glorify his name. How can I, in this situation, at the bottom of the pit, how can I bring glory and honor to God? That's what this is talking about. And see, when you think about it in those terms, it completely changes the equation. It's no longer, how do I rescue me? How do I rescue me? How do I rescue me? It's, Lord, here I am. How am I going to bring glory to your name? I, I tell you, I, I visited a lot of you in the hotel, hotel rooms. I haven't visited anybody in the hotel rooms. In the hospital rooms in the last, uh, in the last couple of years. And, 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 and I love when I hear this. I'll go into a hospital room and, I, and I'm, you know, somebody's obviously, you're sick, are you with me in the hospital room? And sometimes it's very serious. And occasionally somebody will say, well, I'll say first, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're here. You know, and I, and I, and I am, I'm not faking it. I am, I'm sorry. And I, I try, but I try to say it with my most pastoral voice, you know, to maybe bring some encouragement. I'm so sorry you're here and I am. And every once in a while, somebody will say, well, listen, pastor, I've been in the hospital for three days. I've already met 10 people that I didn't know before. And I have glorified God in the lives of all 10 of those people. And you know what I'm thinking? That fellow's going to be okay. Now, I don't know what his medical prognosis is going to be. I don't know anything about that. But you know, that fella, that lady... She's going to hold on to her joy through this whole thing. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to get worse or better. I mean, nobody ever asked me medical advice, and you're smart not to. But that person's joy is just going to be fine. Why? Because they're not panicked over, how am I going to fix this? Their focus is on, how am I going to honor God in the middle of this? And that's, I think that's what David did. In fact, you can read 2 Samuel like, Chapter 10 or 11 through about chapter 20 really tells this whole story. And so I was reading back through that this week. And it's interesting, one thing David did. David had sort of a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, if, if you know that, if you know sort of the history of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, sometimes David and others would use the Ark as a weapon. The Ark represented the presence of God. And so when David was fleeing the city, you know what he took with him? The ark, I mean, that's smart. I would have taken it too. It's like the president fleeing Washington, D.C., but he makes sure he has the nuclear football on the way out. You know, they may run me out, but I've still got the button. So he's, he's headed out and he's taking the ark with him and he gets to the edge of the city and then he turned to Zadok and he said, Zadok, 2 Samuel 15, 25, why don't you just take the ark back to the city? If I find favor with the Lord... I'll see it again. And if I don't, I won't. But the ark needs to be back to the tabernacle. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. What do we do when we get in the pit? Let's worry more about the glory of God 
than we do how to get out of the pit. Number four, very quickly, very quickly, we need to search for the blessings of the Lord. Look at verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as long as I live. Now, what David is doing is he is looking for the blessings of God. You see it here, he says, you prepare table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I'm thinking my prayer would have been very much different than, than David. I don't want to eat in the presence of my enemies. I want my enemies to be gone, okay? I mean, I'll go to Whataburger when they're, when they're gone, but, but let's don't worry about supper. Let's get the enemies gone. But David said, no, you, or God said, no, David, you're still going to have the enemies, but in the midst of the enemies, in the presence of the enemies, notice, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to prepare a table before you. Uh, that, that's, that's Bible words for, I'm going to bless you. Even in the presence I mean, we're thinking, Lord, take away the presence of the enemy. But no, he doesn't say he's going to take it away. He says, even with the enemy, you're still going to see my blessings. You, I will anoint your head with oil. That's another way of saying blessing. Uh, your cup overflows, another way of saying blessing, blessing. And then you see there in verse uh, 6, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. And if I had more time, I could really, we could really go deep into this, into this idea of God's pursuing us. And I enjoyed studying that this week. God... God, I don't know how to explain it. So, so there, are, there are some people in your life that if you had a need, I mean, if you really had a need, you just really needed something, you could call them or you could go and see them and knock on the door and say, sir, I've got a need. And they would respond to you kindly. They'd say, okay, well, I'll see what I can do to meet your need. Okay, that would be a person who is waiting to show you kindness. But the Bible doesn't say God is waiting to show us kindness. Look at this. God is pursuing us with kindness. So don't think you've got a problem. You go knock on somebody's door. No, you've got a problem. You turn around. There's the guy that wants to help you. He's chasing after you. He's pursuing you. He, it, is, it is the highest priority in his life to be a blessing to you. He's not waiting for you. He's not available to you. He is pursuing you. God is pursuing us with, with his blessings. And then he says, and this is another one of those odd things here at the end of the, end of the psalm. He says, you know, I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. I memorize this a little differently. Uh, I will dwell in the house of the Lord how long? Forever. Well, which is it? Forever or as long as I live? Well, you know, it's one of those... Hebrew idioms, and it could mean forever. And so that's the way it's translated in many Bibles. But literally, it just says, I'll live as, I'll be in the house of the Lord as long as I live. And some scholars believe that what David is doing is he's thinking about going back home. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to get back in the palace. I'm going to be next to the door to the tabernacle where the ark is, where I worship God, and I'm going to stay there. Not here in the wilderness. Absalom's not going to be there. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to stay there until I die. It was his hope. God has given me a hope to go back. So here, here's the lesson. When we find ourselves at the bottom of the pit, we need to look for the blessings of God. God is blessing us. God is looking for ways to bless us. We need to be searching for that. Not as just some positive thinking uh, uh, mind trick, 
but because God is sovereign, because Philippians 4.19 says, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Because Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We need to look for the fingerprints of God showing us kindness, even in the pit, even in the presence of our enemies. Let's look for God's blessings. And then the final thing I want you to see here we must embrace the my. I know that's not good grammar, but we need to embrace the my. It's interesting, beautiful picture of Christ here in Psalm 23. One of the things we've tried to do as we've walked through the Old Testament is point to the fact that all of these, all these Old Testament references point to Christ. So you may not have recognized this, but do you know what Psalm 22 is about? Psalm 22 is the is the psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. He quoted parts of this. Psalm 22 is about Jesus uh, as a suffering savior. Psalm 24, the psalm afterwards, do you know what that one's about? That psalm is about Jesus as the returning king. And sandwiched right in between Jesus as the suffering savior and Jesus as the reigning king, we have Psalm 23, Jesus is our shepherd. Isn't that amazing? But the richest truth, I think, in Psalm 23, found in just those first five words, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, somebody has written about this and said, the most important word in the whole 23rd Psalm is in those five words, and it's the shortest of those five words. It's just the word my. The Lord is my shepherd. See, that, uh, we, we skip over that, but, and I think we fail to recognize just the value that we can say as children of God, we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, there's a big difference between a shepherd and my shepherd. Do you know that? There's a big difference between a house and my house. Right? So when I drive home from church, I'll pass 100 houses between the, the church and my house. And those are all A houses. A house, those are all houses. But I can't just pull into one of those houses, just walk in and you know, grab a can of Coke from the refrigerator and sit on the recliner. People just say, who, who are you? What are you doing? Get out of here. Somebody call the police. I mean, just because it's A house doesn't mean it's my house. But when I get to my house... Oh, I love my house. I like almost everybody who lives there. <laughs> I, um, I mean, it's relaxing, it's comfortable. I, it's my house. See, there's a difference between a house and my house. I've got a whole list. There's a difference between a wife and my wife. There's a difference between a mother and my mother. I mean, I'm an old man now, but when I have a tough day, you know what I want to do? I want to call my mother. I, now, lots of you are mothers. I don't want to talk to you, okay? I want to talk to my mother. There's a difference between a pile of money or my pile of money, right? There's a big difference. And there's a difference between the Lord is a shepherd and the Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. We have to embrace that. When you go through a difficult time, you're at the bottom of the pit, you've got to say, the Lord He's my shepherd. He's, he's guiding me. 
He's feeding me. He's providing for me. He cares for me. He's my shepherd. David did that. It's interesting uh, to look at the bad grammar of the 23rd Psalm. Now, I, I believe the Bible is all perfect and true. So I tongue in cheek when I say bad grammar, but I want you to notice this. Look at the, at the person, you know, first person, second person, third person. Um, look, look at how that works in here. Uh, the, how he refers to God. Uh, the Lord, maybe it's not person. I'm not a grammar, grammar person, but let me just, you'll, you'll see it when I show it. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I have what I want. He lets me lie down in green pastures. So he, he leads me beside the still waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. So he says he or him five times in the first three verses. But then it changes. Verse four, even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for what? For you are with me. See, he was talking about God in the first three verses. He's not talking about God in verse four. He says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of man. You see, you anoint my head with oil. You, he went from talking about God and this is what we've got to do as well. When we're at the bottom of the pit, he went from talking about God to talking to God. He embraced, he is my shepherd. Now, this message has two purposes. One is I, I want to give you comfort. I want to tell you how to find comfort. Start here when you're in the pit because you're going to be in the pit. But I also, also have this purpose. For some of you right here, for some of you watching online or watching on television, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. But for some people, he's just a shepherd. For some people that hear me, he's just a shepherd. And there's a big difference. There has to be a time in our life when we've understood that we're hopeless without a shepherd. That because of our sin, we're separated from God, we're hopeless. But that God has loved us enough to send Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. And we don't just have to be aware of that, we have to embrace that. There has to be a time where we, where we say, God, I, I trust you. And what Jesus has done for the forgiveness of my sins, I trust you, I surrender to you, I turn from my sins and I embrace you. And then he goes from being a shepherd my shepherd. And so if he is just your, your, if he is just a shepherd to you this morning, won't you let us help you make him my shepherd today? Head bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. If you need to come and talk to somebody about that or anything else, or you need us to pray for you, I'm going to ask you to step right down front while others are singing. If God has led you to join our church, I know we have some coming this morning. You come and just have a seat on this first row here. We'll talk to you briefly. But you let the Lord be your shepherd this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that you are my shepherd. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.